All right, if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. You can find our sermon text also in your bulletins this morning or on page 808 of uh, the Blue Bibles if you would like to use those ones that are in front of you. Uh, last week, we looked at the first part of this chapter. We looked at John the Baptist and uh, introduced his ministry of preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. And we saw that he preached a message of repentance and he administered a baptism of repentance. So both in the words that he spoke and as we acknowledged last week, the clothes that he wore, the place where he was, and in the ministry of baptism that he engaged in, all of those things were about repentance about turning to the Lord. Today, the long-expected one comes to John. So hear these words. These are the living words of our living God who is here with us today speaking to us through this word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you were, are, and ever shall be well pleased with your son. We thank you for the love that you have for your son. And Jesus, we thank you for the love that you have for your father. And Spirit, we thank you for the love that you have poured out into our hearts so that we can say with David, I love you, Lord. Be with us today and enable that in your name we pray. Amen. Well, our lives and history itself are, of course, made up of moments. And some of the moments, perhaps most of the moments of history and of our lives, consist of normal, everyday events that take place. And they come and go, right? Some of them have a little bit of joy or a little bit of sorrow. Many of them have just routineness to them. And they come and go in our lives and we can quickly forget about them or what took place in them. But of course, there are other moments. There are moments that stand out. There are moments that, if you will pardon an intentional pun, are in fact momentous. When they occur, we mark them. We remember them. We tell stories about those moments. To this point in his life, Jesus is, let's say, about 30 years old. He had lived his life, relatively speaking, in obscurity. 
up to this point. You know, we know the stories of his birth. We know one story when he was 12 years old. Uh, and then basically what we have are very brief summary statements. And those summary statements are rich uh, in and of themselves that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. But that's kind of all we have until this moment. That all changes with this moment that is in front of us today, the moment of his baptism wherein the Son takes his place. That's what I titled the sermon today. The Son takes his place. The eternal Son of God, now the incarnate Son of God, takes his place, takes the role, takes the office that was assigned to him from before the foundation of the world. This is the moment. This is that moment. This is the moment when Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. Jesus wasn't just walking along and happened to come across John and thought, well, I'll join with everybody else and be baptized. That's what everybody else seems to be doing. Jesus, with intent and with purpose, went out seeking after John, seeking after his baptism to be baptized by John. Every gospel writer has this force. Every gospel writer includes this about Jesus and about John the Baptist. There's slight variations in them, uh, which help to fill in the picture for us uh, quite a bit. But every one of them says to us, watch this, look at this moment, behold what happens here at this particular place. Now, I want us to work through this text and see what's going on with it. And the way I would like us to do it today is through a series of why questions. So, the first why question is, why was John resistant? Right? Clearly, he's resistant to the idea, why is he resistant? The second why question that we'll ask then is, why was Jesus baptized? Why did Jesus want to be baptized by John. And then the third why question, again, just working through the text, is why do we get this particular heavenly response at this point? Why do we hear from that with respect to this incident, this moment in particular? So we'll begin kind of where our text begins, namely with John's resistance, with his reticence, with his hesitancy with respect to baptizing Jesus. Why is he initially opposed to this idea of baptizing Jesus? We can see that he is, right? He, he, he would have prevented him is what the text says. That is to say, he, John, would have prevented Jesus from going through this at John's hand. So we can begin an answer to this question by simply remembering what we were talking about last week. So what did we discover last week about John the Baptist? How was it presented to us? It was presented to us that John's ministry was one of preparation for the one. He was getting things ready for the Messiah who was to come. He was helping people to make a way in their own hearts for him. And John, as he saw it, he saw that this one, the one who is coming, this Messiah, would be, in fact, superior to John in every way. 
He would be superior to John with respect to his person, who he was. He would be superior to John in the ministry of baptism that came from him. Right? So that's what John testified. He said, this one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to tie untie his sandals. He's so much greater than I am, and his baptism is so much greater than my baptism. His baptism is with fire and with the Spirit. And we could add as well, if John would have said this as well, his ministry, his preaching ministry, his prophetic ministry is so much superior to mine and greater than mine that... John, with that idea in his mind, he knows he is one who is preparing, not the one. For him, it seems to be categorically incongruent and out of order for him to baptize Jesus. How do I do this to him? Uh, last week, I used a, a phrase to explain the relationship between John and Jesus that's kind of taken from uh, the Gospel of John. But the idea that I said was simply this, that, that John is the moon to Jesus being the sun. In other words, the, the, the moon needs the, the, the light of the sun to be luminescent. However, the sun doesn't need the moon. And so for John, he's kind of looking at this going, I get it. I, I get why I need you. I don't understand why you would need me and you would need my ministry to do this. But perhaps even of greater significance than that, I think that's significant enough in and of itself to explain his reticence, but perhaps of even greater significance is that John, as I've already said and as we saw so plainly last week, John preached a message of repentance. He administered a baptism of repentance. He called on the people to make this room in their heart by acknowledging by confessing their sins and turning or returning, if you would like, unto the Lord. In other words, and this is an important way just to say it in as simple of language as we can, John's baptism was for sinners. John's baptism was for sinners. And thus, it doesn't make sense to John that he should baptize the sinless one who is himself the one who is the refiner, the one who is the purifier, the one who brings, if you will, a refiner's fire, the one who is the fuller's soap, the purifier of God's people. And the language that I'm using there is from Malachi uh, chapter 3. We read it uh, in our Old Testament reading last week. John is the messenger who precedes that one who is coming, but this one who is coming is the one who takes away sin. In other words, and to put it very simply, the way John sees it, the Messiah doesn't need cleansing. He brings cleansing. Right? That's, that's, that's the difference that John, John is looking at. He brings cleansing for John, for all who will repent. Thus, John's statement in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. It doesn't go the other way around. You don't need my baptism. I need the baptism that you bring. Now, here's an interesting question. I, I don't know if you would think of this one or not, or I would think of this one, but uh, I thought of it at least in preparation and wanted to address it for just a moment, kind of a subset of this question. And that is to say, how did John put all this together with respect to Jesus? 
How did he know? When, when, when Jesus is coming, how did he at this point know, I, I don't think I should be baptizing you? In, in the Gospel of John, uh, John the Baptist gives his testimony in that Gospel. And here's one of the things that he says. John, John the Baptist says this, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then he continues on, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. In other words, what John is saying, John the Baptist is saying, is that he was finally able to put it all together once the baptism took place. Why? Because that's what he saw. He saw the descent of the Spirit. He heard the voice of God. And that was the moment at which he went, okay, I get it. I understand now who this one is. So it, it leaves us with a little bit of a question. How did he, why was he resistant at this point before the baptism takes place? Now let me try and answer this in a couple of possible ways. First of all, there could have been dialogue conversation that went on before the conversation that we have, right? We just have two lines that are given there. There could have been some interaction that took place before that that we're not privy to in this text but would have helped John to understand the situation. That's possible. A more likely, I think, possibility is that John, of course, has been full of the Holy Spirit from the very moment of his conception. So John, remember, leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when Mary came in and greeted Elizabeth. In other words, there was a recognition of who Jesus was in the womb, not because of John's intelligence, but because of the fact that he was a prophet inspired by the Spirit who reacts, responds to the voice of the mother of my Lord being in the same room at the same place with him. So certainly there was some prophetic inspiration that was going on here for John in being able to recognize, even if not fully, even if not putting everything together, at least the uniqueness of the one who was approaching him for baptism. Here's the third thing, though, that's possible, and this is easy for us to forget. John and Jesus were related. At least it's easy for me to forget that John and Jesus were related. Mary and Elizabeth were related. And we don't know exactly how because the, the terms that are used there are not specific terms. But most people would say they're cousins. Okay, that, that John and Jesus are cousins or maybe... And, and if you know me, you know that don't trust what I'm saying right now. Cousins once removed um, or, or something like that. But anyway, they're, they're related to one another. And so the point being, they probably knew one another. They probably had spent some time together throughout their youth, growing up uh, uh, at some points together at least. And certainly the stories about their, uh, the conceptions that led to their births, their birth stories themselves, would have been part of the family discussions, the things that you talked about at some point, and a recognition that there's a uniqueness about my son John and a uniqueness about our son Jesus as well. So John probably knew that there's something unique about this one that I know who's coming up to me for baptism right now. So with all of this in mind, I think, it, I think we can easily appreciate why John is resistant to it, right? I, I, we can get it. That makes sense. So let's now ask, why then was 
Jesus baptized. So verse 15 gives us Jesus' response to John's hesitancy in a concise sentence that is simply jam-packed with meaning. Uh, this, this one sentence from Jesus is an engine that is freighting entire, an entire Bible's worth of theology and of history and of good news with it. And of course, the sentence that Jesus says is, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's the answer that Jesus gives. That's the answer to why he must be baptized. He, the Son of God, must take his place on the stage in the drama of redemptive history. John is in his place. John is in his place. He is the one who is preparing the way for the coming of the one. Now, the one has to take his place as well. So what are we to make of this moment? Why is Jesus coming and being baptized? I'm going to give you five answers to that question. The first is perhaps the most simple. At its most basic level, this is an act of humility. Jesus is submitting himself as the Son of God to this work, this ministry of a man who he knows is a sinful man in need of exactly what he, Jesus, will bring into the world. It's a mark of his meekness and humility that he comes to John and submits to that. Here's the second thing. It shows us the obedience of our Savior. Jesus is being baptized, as he himself says, to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Now, those terms, fulfill and righteousness, are rich, deep in, uh, in scripture and in meaning. Uh, but at least, at a minimum, what they reveal is that Jesus understood his baptism and all that his re ba baptism represented to be obedience to the will of his Father. That's what he was stepping into. He was fulfilling that which had been said, that which had been lived in the history of God's people throughout the ages. He was fulfilling it, and he was fulfilling it unto righteousness, in righteousness, to say that he was perfectly obedient to the will of his Father who desired him to receive this baptism. This righteousness then is a joyful, loving obedience to the will of his Father. Now there are a million moments in the life of Jesus that had come in the 30 years prior to this and in the three plus years that would follow this. There are a million moments where this can be expressed in his life and at various points testimony is given to it by Jesus that I always do the will of him who sent me. That he's the sinless Lamb of God. But here, this moment right here, and the moment on the cross, are the moments of moments. These are the two, at the beginning of his ministry, and at the completion of his ministry, that mark out 
I am the one who fulfills all righteousness by always lovingly, joyfully doing the will of my Heavenly Father. Third, Jesus is stepping deeper into identity with his people, with Israel. Now, Matthew showed us this already, Jesus' connection with his people, by opening his gospel with the genealogy, by connecting Jesus immediately to Abraham, to David, and to all of the people and the points in between Abraham and David. In Exodus, and this is just to give us a little bit of biblical backdrop here on the identifying that Jesus is doing with his people, in the book of Exodus, God in preparing to bring out his people, calls Israel his firstborn son. Israel, he says, is my firstborn son. And Israel, as the firstborn son, would experience baptism, would experience what the New Testament looks back on and says, that's baptism. Now, the New Testament looks at the flood with Noah, and says, this is a type of baptism, if you can understand that. But it's true for Israel as well. They experienced baptism. They experienced it in the crossing of the Red Sea, later in the Jordan as well. Here's what 1 Corinthians 10 says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the cloud itself, the cloud of the presence of God that went with the people, directed the people, that was a type of baptism. The crossing of the Red Sea is a type of baptism, not listed here though. Also, the crossing of the Jordan, a type of baptism as well of the people of God, of the people of Israel. In Matthew 2, we didn't look at Matthew 2, the chapter that precedes this one, it describes the descent of the family, uh, of Jesus' family, down into Egypt, fleeing persecution, and then coming back into the land. And the pattern is thus exactly the same. What is being illustrated to us in the life of Jesus is that he identifies with his people because his people went down into Egypt to flee a famine that took place in the land. They came out of Egypt and were baptized as they came out of Egypt under the cloud and as they crossed through the Red Sea. So what is happening here is Jesus, in submitting to this baptism, is identifying himself with his people with Israel, what has taken place in the life of Israel. Fourth, our fourth point brings us to the very heart of the matter here. In his humility, in his obedience, and in his identification with Israel, Jesus is stepping into the place of sinners. He is not merely identifying himself with an ancient people. He's identifying himself, marking himself, allowing himself to be counted amongst those who are sinners. In our promise of forgiveness, I chose that passage from Isaiah 53, obviously intentionally, 
for this moment in the service, if you look at it on page four of your bulletin. There are two phrases in each of these verses, verses six and 11, that help to illustrate or that show exactly what we're talking about here. In verse six, there in the middle of the promise of forgiveness, we read this, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in, uh, in the 11th verse, which is just below it, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That is happening in this baptism. In this baptism, Jesus is taking upon himself our unrighteousness. He is submitting himself to the yoke that belongs to us. The yoke is our sinfulness. He is bearing our iniquities. What he is saying here is, I will step into their place. I will bear their iniquities on myself, my soul, and my body. And he's fulfilling righteousness. He's bearing iniquity, and at the exact same time, he is fulfilling righteousness. Because that's what he says, right? That it might be that we might fulfill all righteousness by doing this. He is the righteous one who is stepping into that place with the intention that the very righteousness that he has is a righteousness that will be poured out on many. So he's not going to be the last one baptized. He's going to be, if you will, the first among those who are baptized for all of the rest of us who join into the baptism as well. He is going to make many to be accounted righteous. The righteous one makes many to be accounted righteous. Now, there are various places in Scripture, next Sunday we'll be in it in Sunday school, that illustrate this very idea. I know of none that say it more compactly or more clearly than 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's what it says. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, that is God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, so who is righteous? So, so he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, the righteous one, to be sin for us. So, so now take that one. He's the righteous one. As he approaches John in baptism, John says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. You're the righteous one. This doesn't belong to you. God says, no, no, no. I make him who knew no sin to be sin. Get him in that place. He needs to be under this. Who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He goes in the righteous, submits himself to the place of the sinner. In other words, our sins counted onto him, walks out of that place as the righteous son still who has obeyed the father but counted as the sinner now and thereby is making many righteous. That's what's happening here. This is the moment where that is taking place. Now, finally, it will, of course, have to take place on the cross, but it is accepted here. It is accepted here. The shadow of the cross lies full heavy on this baptism right here. That, you, you can't understand the baptism without understanding the cross. That's coming as well the symbolic death and resurrection that is here. He is our substitute. He is standing in our place. So I, I, I titled the sermon, The Son Takes His Place. 
the remarkable thing is the place that the sun is taking is the place where we ought to be. When the sun takes his place, he puts us aside and says, excuse me, you're going to need me to be in that place. You have to have me there. Fifth, the baptism of Jesus is his accepting of his office. His office, you can call it by a variety of things. His office as our mediator, as our redeemer, as our savior. He's accepting the office here and all of the work that is entailed by taking the office. In other words, this is his inauguration. This is his installation. This is his ordination as he takes this upon himself. This is his anointing. This is why he's called the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. All the same word, right? All the exact same word. This is his anointed. He is King David's long-awaited messianic son. He is the eternal son of God, now incarnate and anointed as what he is. He is anointed as the God-man son of God the messianic king come into the world. On the front of your bulletin is Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, begotten not in the sense of birth here, not, not that he was born on this day, but he is anointed and revealed to be who he is. The Son of God on this day. The Messianic King. And not only does he take the office of the Messianic King upon himself, but he takes an office that in David is lived and in Isaiah is made more specific. He takes upon himself the office of being the suffering servant. Isaiah 42 said, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. Isaiah 53 said, Out of the anguish of his soul shall my servant, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He's taking the office of the king and the suffering servant upon himself at this very moment. He is the bruised reed, the faintly burning wick. And he says, that's me. I take that upon Myself, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's why he's baptized. He accepts it. And he reveals it here at the outset of his ministry. Why then does this event receive this heavenly response? Well, because this is the moment. This is the time. And I have to kind of put this in, in if you allow me to speak in a, in a way that would be familiar to us. The Father sees what is taking place, sees the Son stepping into the place that was assigned to Him from before the foundation of the world. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And He steps into this place and the Father cries. Tears of pain, because He knows what this means for the Son to step into that baptism and tears of joy because his righteous son is obeying what he set out for him to do. 
so willingly, so meekly, so wondrously, the Father smiles at the heart of his Son in delight. I, I, behold the Trinity, right? Not just behold the Lamb of God here. Behold the Trinity. The Father looks at his Son and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's just picking up Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I delight, I'm pleased in the person of my son. Remember 2 Samuel 7, the covenant that's made with David. God says to him, your son, your son, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son and I will not take my steadfast love from him. I won't take it. I won't take my love off of your son, David. It is my promise to you. It is my covenant promise to you that it remains and abides on him. And that's the affirmation of the father here at the outset of the ministry of Jesus is to say, my love's on you. I've, I've said it before. I'm saying it again. My love is on the Davidic messianic son king. And I won't take it away from him. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The Spirit anoints the already Spirit-filled Son. The Spirit anoints him with power, with voice, with patience, with endurance, with courage for the road that is set out before him. In other words, the Son receives what He will pour out on all who believe. Jesus receives the power, the comfort, the assurance, the presence, the fellowship of the Spirit. And Jesus receives the delight and the love and the pleasure of the Father. And it is exactly those things that he pours out on the many who will be accounted righteous because of his righteousness. That's what he pours, the exact same thing. That you see the son receiving here, the son distributes upon you as well. What a glorious moment for the triune God, for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What a glorious moment for John to be there, to be up close and personal when this event takes place. What a glorious moment for us that each one of the gospel writers recorded it in their own way so that we could enter into the moment as well. A simple call to you then this week. Remember the moment. Rejoice in the moment. Enjoy the moment, because he did it for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you entered into that place, into the place of the sinner, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what we are.
Help us to believe it, Lord. It's easier sometimes to believe the lies of the evil one, to be self-condemnatory, and yet the declaration is true. Your work is perfect, and we thank you for it. And we pray in your name. Amen.